The download is complete. Welcome to the AV Forums Podcast, presented by Phil Hinton. This month's Home Cinema Podcast. Coming up, we have Graham Goodburn for Fujitsu and Neil Davidson from Team W Marketing as we discuss the latest AV news and we delve into the sticky subject of HDMI cables. And joining me on the panel uh, this month, uh, we have Graham Goodburn from Fujitsu. Hello, Graham. Hi, Phil. Nice to be here. And we also have uh, our regular uh, pundit. It's Neil Davidson from TNW Marketing and the forum's technical editor. Hi, Neil. Hi, Phil. How are you? Very well. Thanks very much. Okay, guys, so uh, let's kick things off as we normally do with the latest uh, AV news, things that are going on in the industry at the moment. And I guess uh, the most exciting thing to happen since we were last on air is that Sony has issued uh, an update on the firmware for the PS3 and it can now output DTS Master Audio. Neil, we said this was going to happen at some point. So good news all round that, that this has eventually happened then? Yes, it's always uh, good news when uh, a player that's as popular as the PlayStation 3 uh, receives what is a free update that everyone can download and add some new features uh, to the device. Um, I think something that we always welcome is something for nothing. And uh, and Graham, with the the lack of uh, standalone players out there at the moment that can do uh, Profile 2 and the audio codecs, um, it looks like the, the PS3 is stealing a bit of a lead here with it being Profile 2.0 and having the audio codecs. Yeah, well, I must admit, I've always had a bit of a soft spot for a PS3, even when people said, oh, it wasn't very good at this, it wasn't very good at that. But um, like you say, um, the free updates are making it quite a serious machine it does have a lot of welly behind it with their cell processor and um, the things they're doing with the CD upsampling and the DVD scaling and Blu-ray player and now they've uh, you know, icing on the cake and given us the DTS Master um, for the, the, the nice end of 400 quid it's, well, can you really go wrong with it? And I guess from a forum member's point of view and an AV enthusiast's point of view, I guess we've got to ask the question, if Sony's PS3 can be Profile 2.0, it can have the audio codecs on it, why go out and spend more money on a standalone player? Um, are there any issues where you see a standalone player being being better performance-wise than a PS3 at this moment in time? It's a good, very good question, actually. Um, a standalone player should be a better Blu-ray player on all fronts really because it only has to do one thing so they can build the electronics inside to do that the best possible way but the PS3 um, apart from its control interface being a real pain in the ass for uh, custom installers it's not a bad option and uh, my son doesn't seem to be out of brakies either so it's quite reliable um, it's not perfect, and, but we'll have to see what the standalone players do to compete. And Neil, with uh, with the market the way it is at the moment, now that we have one format, are you excited as a as an industry uh, member that that things might actually progress with BD now, and that the technology is going to move quite quickly? Well, it is quite pleasing. Um, we've been on a few sites lately uh, where, truthfully, uh, Blu-ray disc uh, would have really brought out the best of them. Um, the standard def DVDs, when coupled with the, the large screen projection, were just letting the side down a little bit um, compared to what 
uh, well, people like you and I and, and Graham have got used to seeing from high def. Um, th the problem is that many people up until now didn't have a chance really to see the improvement that high def movies can make. But I can tell you, having now spent quite a lot of time viewing high def, um, especially on the larger screens, it makes such a difference that we will quickly see, I think, um, more and more installers moving over onto it. Um, and the fact that the confusion and the, the nervousness, I think, that a lot of people in the industry felt about recommending a product to their clients, which could become completely obsolete in a few months, has now been taken away. Um, unfortunately for uh, some of those guys who put in HD DVD players, um, I know that they have been going back to sites to put in a Blu-ray disc player as well. Um, but, well, all of those problems now seem to be over, and I really think that we'll see um, a much faster growth in high def than we have so far. And, of course, uh, Panasonic, who are massive in the uh, CE industry, and another massive uh, company, Samsung, both gotten together this last month um, in a BD alliance to uh, promote their hardware. So it looks like things are moving quite quickly there, Graham. Yes, great to see, really. Um, like I said, when the format war was at its height, everybody was holding back, and now it's uh, all done and dusted. Hopefully we'll see some really good, good quality, reasonably priced BD players come onto the market with all the bells and whistles that we know they can put into them. Okay, so uh, just before we move things on, um, let's have a prediction from you guys. Um, okay, let's look forward to quarter four. How well do you think uh, Blu-ray is going to do? And first of all, we'll go to Neil. I think that Blu-ray will do very well. Um, debatable how big an impact it's going to have in the consumer sector for the rest of this year. As we've seen, uh, software and player prices are still relatively high. Um, but we've seen at the higher end of the custom install market a very quick shift now um, into offering these players um, to clients. Uh, and I think that that's certainly going to drive the adoption. And, and people must realise that typically when these players go in, the client will go out and buy one or 200 uh, discs to go along with it so they have a nice collection. Um, so that, that that will certainly help to drive the market along. And Grim? Yeah, I think I agree wholeheartedly with what Neil's just said. Um, it will drive the market and hopefully it'll drive it for the better. I must admit, um, I do have this nagging doubt in the back of my mind that uh, um, the old the old adage that uh, any new technology that replaces an old technology lasts half as long as that technology did so you know dvd had what, best part of 10 years to itself from the really early days till now and um, blu-ray might have half that which is where well, it's been a year and a bit two years into it already so for the next three years we'll probably see it have a peak and then drop off. But um, I still have half an eye to the likes of uh, Virgin Media, NTL, Sky and people like that with their fledgling HD download services. You know, Channel 4 are, are, are playing with it, BBC are playing with it. Um, you know, Broadband Britain being what it is, uh, when the broadband speeds come up to... Um, some of the other places in Europe and Scandinavia that enjoy 28 meg downloads speeds, um, maybe we'll just uh, bypass disk-based formats altogether eventually in a couple of years' time and we just download all our HD content, pay for it, watch it and uh, store it. Uh, hard disk storage is cheap, as uh, everybody with an HTPC knows. 
But um, there is an argument that people like something physical to put in their rack to touch, which is why discs are so popular. But uh, give it a couple of years, who knows? Interesting times ahead. Okay, well, thanks, guys, and uh, we'll be back in just a second. The highest definition. 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 This is the AV Forums podcast. Okay, and uh, before we get finished with the news uh, this week, we're going to talk about something we touched on uh, last month, Neil, and that's the Pioneer Panasonic uh, situation. Uh, Pioneer announcing that they're going to outsource their panels, and uh, they've officially announced now that they are now in alliance with Panasonic and that their engineers are, are going to move over um, to the Panasonic uh, development plant. So how do you see things progressing now that we've had that confirmation through? Well, the first thing is that the confirmation was the least surprising uh, piece of news, I think, that we've had all year. Um, I think that it is the only move that could have happened. Um, I also think it's quite an interesting move. We've seen that Panasonic uh, have made quite some strides with their panels, um, Panasonic panels traditionally have always had a slightly different look to them uh, than the Pioneer panels. Um, and I know that it's a matter of taste, but I, for one, have always preferred the look of the Panasonic panels. Um, so if uh, if those clever guys can combine the the sharpness and the, the crispness of a, a Panasonic panel with the, uh, the black levels um, and some of the other colour processing features that Pioneer have been known for, then it could be a very, very good match for the consumer. Um, so, Graham, what's your first of all? What's your thoughts on the pioneer approach to their plasma business now? Well, I must admit, um, I was reasonably happy to hear that Pioneer are actually taking up um, the metal with uh, Panasonic. Um, it's uh, something that most people would have realised has happened before with uh, Fujitsu. So um, it uh, does sound very much like a case of deja vu. And um, I don't know, with Pioneer's Electronics and uh, Matsushita's manufacturing prowess, they they could end up with quite a nice, you know, quite a nice performing TV, really. Um, you know, Fujitsu, it was no secret um, in the good old days. They used to supply Fujitsu panels to just about everybody, you know, Sony, Philips, B&O, Hitachi, just to name but a few. And, um, you know, when they run their own plasma manufacturing plants, um, it was, uh, you know, the envy of the world. Everybody bought Fujitsu panels and put them in their own screens. Um, Matsushita were the other people that came along. And, um, you know, the rest is history. Fujitsu sold off their manufacturing plant to Hitachi, um, still retained a minor share because they still use a, a few panels from that particular plant, which is now known as FHP for those geeky enough to want to know. But, um, you know, uh, everybody knows that our 58 series and the plasma based Avi Armour range were all based on Matsushita panels and uh, just um, nailed Fujitsu's bespoke electronics onto the back of what was a, you know, a really good performing panel but the electronics obviously made you know that huge difference where people you know put a Panasonic next to a Fujitsu and would realize that one picture was rather better than the other but they were aimed at very different price points and now Pioneer are doing the same thing you know, I can see Pioneer's electronics and their their methods of uh, getting down to those really nice black levels and a nice reasonably priced and stable 
and well-manufactured Matsushita panel um, might do rather well for Pioneer. Well, they certainly hope so anyway. I would hate that the market only had the likes of LG, Samsung and the cheaper Viera panels for people to choose from, because um, that would uh, make me very sad indeed. Now, the uh, the thing with sharing um, different manufacturers' panels is uh, it doesn't make that great deal of difference, does it, Graham? I mean, obviously... Uh, you buy in the glass, but then you can add your own electronics uh, to that to to give it its own unique performance, can't you? Oh, absolutely. I mean, the panel is important, but if you start off with a good panel, um, adding your electronics to it and tailoring the electronics to how you want the image to appear, um, video processing varies enormously between manufacturers' screens. There's probably nothing wrong with the PDP panel that LG put in theirs, but unless you put in a great deal of R&D and not a small amount of money into the back of the screen to process the image properly, the results can vary from so-so, average, quite good, to blimey, that's a very good picture. And one hopes that Pioneer will take up the metal of the high-end PDP manufacturer supplier of choice for you know, foreseeable future because you know, Fujitsu are not there anymore and there's this big gaping high-end and custom install market just waiting for Pioneer to grab it up. I must admit, I've been saying to a lot of our dealers that, okay, you can't get a 58 series panel off us. You, know, you should really, really look at putting a Pioneer panel in to do your customers you know, justice. Everybody can go off and get a Panasonic Vieira panel on the internet and make about 30 quid on it. But uh, they are what they are. They're good screens, but they're not great. But, uh, hopefully Pioneer's marriage with Panasonic will be seen as a high-end range and leave Panasonic to um, do the normal stuff. Now, obviously, I think what we need to explain to people as well is that um, Panasonic, in terms of manufacturing, are massive um, they've built their, their infrastructure up from the ground up to be um, as large as they are. And the reason that their screens um, can compete at the budget level is because they produce screens for, for other manufacturers. There'll be a lot of people who point fingers, though, Graham, and say, um, well, this is a dangerous move for Pioneer because if they're letting their engineers go over to Panasonic, um, Panasonic's just going to take the Kuro uh, technology from there and add it to their own screen so you know you may as well just buy a Panasonic screen because you're going to get uh, uh, Pioneer uh, uh, performance from it well yes um, there is uh, very much a feeling of deja vu with um, various people in the industry uh, especially Fujitsu type people um, it didn't happen with Fujitsu so I doubt it will happen with Pioneer and of course Pioneer have the benefit of seeing how Fujitsu and Panasonic's marriage went and will learn from the mistakes, the outcomes and everything else along the way. Uh, Panasonic have carved themselves out a name for making lots and lots and lots of reasonably priced screens at reasonable performance. Pioneer have made their made their name by selling screens that competed at the Fujitsu level, and um, you know, it would be silly of Pioneer to try and compete with Panasonic on price. So the brand will have to have a differentiation and performance difference, and they should all get along famously. Um, 
I doubt Panasonic will uh, steal all of Pioneer's ideas and then incorporate them into their own ranges because what Pioneer do with their screens isn't cheap to do. It's the same with Fujitsu with their processing. It was not cheap to do, which is why they cost what they cost. Um, to expect that a marriage with Panasonic will end up with a 700-pound, 50-inch uh, Pioneer branded screen is probably not going to happen. At least I hope not, because there'd be no point. Panasonic have that market sewn up, along with Samsung and LG in various guises, and Pioneer would be sensible to stay away from that and concentrate on the custom install market and the higher end screens and there's no doubt about it you put put some money into the back of a screen you do get the performance out of the screen which makes a clear difference which people are prepared to pay for and and I guess finally with the Pioneer scenario um, I guess some people could describe it as being um, uh, quite a sensible move from them. Sharp bought into into Pioneer last year. They bought sixteen percent of the company. We all know that Sharp produce uh, LCD panels, and we know that Pioneer are looking at bringing out their own LCD Curo range. Um, so, with Pioneer moving into bed with uh, Panasonic as well for the plasma front, um, some people would say, "Well, that's quite good business sense." What do you think? It's very difficult for people like Pioneer to be in business alone. Um, it's probably not a well-known thing that Fujitsu and Sharp had worked together for years on various projects. And obviously that, um, Fujitsu had worked with Panasonic for years on various projects. And the fruits did, um, well, well, pretty damned obvious to all concerned you know, Fujitsu had a really high-end screen and Sharp came out of the uh, reasonable LCD business to make quite acceptable screens recently and that's just a sharing of technology and patents and various other things now one wonders if um, the alliance that uh, Fujitsu had with Sharp and the alliance Fujitsu had with Panasonic may result in Fujitsu relinquishing some of the patents on their AVM processing. Uh, if that happens and that found its way into a Pioneer screen, it would probably uh, cure the only real thing um, that stood the difference between a Pioneer and a Fujitsu, which was in ultimate signal processing. Um, so Pioneer could do very well out of it. I certainly hope so. I mean, obviously, Pioneer were mortal enemies <laughs> in, in, in the good old days, but um, you know, it's good to have competition and it's good to have someone in that market because, like I said, otherwise you end up with strictly average screens. Nobody steps up to the mark to make a better screen. They just sell cheap and cheerful and we all end up buying our screens in Currys and Dixons and um, staring at strictly average pictures. So yeah, I wish them all the best with it. I really do. Now, Grim, uh, let's just move this on. We've heard you mention Fujitsu quite a bit uh, in your replies there. Um, now, four members might not be aware of what your role um, in the industry it, uh, has been in the past and is now. So uh, maybe you can quickly explain what your role is and uh, what your role is with Fujitsu. And um, can you tell us what actually ultimately happened um, to make Fujitsu pull out of the market? Yes, certainly I can, Phil. Uh, well, first of all, for those that don't know me, um, I am currently the UK and European Service and Technical Manager for Fujitsu Plasma Vision. 
the office consists of uh, five people now since uh, Fujitsu closed their doors to manufacturing and so that's all on service and administration and repair technicians um, and it will continue for as long as anybody wants a Fujitsu screen repaired and certainly anybody that's got a screening warranty will have no need to worry we've set in place some really robust budgets to uh, service everybody's needs for however long it takes you know, legal obligations aside people are there to ge that generally want to help now the big thing about Fujitsu's announcement which happened over last Christmas and uh, for those that uh, enjoy this sort of thing got me out of bed on Boxing Day morning to go into the office to make the announcement public on the website um, apparently the Japanese don't celebrate Boxing Day and were most put out when they realised they got me out of bed at 9 o'clock in the morning but um, the decision was a global one it, uh, had, it was nothing that the UK operation could influence or do anything about um, the UK sales were strong and this wasn't a decision taken because UK sales were bad. It was a decision largely brought about by the discussions that Japan and America had to do with pricing. Over in America, Panasonic are a very... Um, they're at the box-shifting end of the market. And they sell them in Walmart and places like this. And the price that they were selling them at made it very difficult for any high-end plasma manufacturer to get a look in and they asked for reduced pricing so they could compete and Japan simply looked at the whole issue and thought to themselves well if they need to reduce their prices to that level to compete they can't manufacture them in bulk to make any money out of it so the decent thing is to be honest about it and say we can't make any money so therefore we'll pull out of the market um, the knock-ons to that uh, were well worldwide the Australians were none so happy about it and the British were none so happy about it and uh, a lot of places in Europe were none too happy about it um, as dealers were only, only too well realised that uh, margins in certain manufacturer screens are not all they should be um, they don't allow for service and support and things like this they, you know, some, some screen manufacturers margins might be 30 quid on the screen which um, largely doesn't even cover the cost of storing it in their warehouse but uh, you know um, margins are important to everybody dealers don't make any money dealers close their doors and therefore you have less choice which affects everybody it's um, it's a very cut and thrust game out there at the moment um, as I say globally uh, production will cease at the end well, did cease at the end of March for Fujitsu because there was simply no way that a business could finance a loss on each sale. Um, you can argue all day long whose fault it was, what if, and everything else. But at the end of the day, Fujitsu weren't making thousands and thousands and tens of thousands of screens every month that got sold. They were at the higher end of the market, and um, you know, that's the way it was. I mean, Panasonic actually have I think it's three PDP plants running at the moment and they're building a fourth so they're really deadly serious about conquering the market and if you're not using Panasonic panels at whichever end of the market it is um, you're on a bit of a rocky road and um, the Koreans aside um, yeah, they've got the market to themselves so you buy into it and uh, 
build yourself a niche and hopefully make some money, which is what I hope Pioneer do. Now, Graham, um, that's quite a gloomy picture um, of the TV market. And myself and Neil discussed this last month in our podcast um, that we were both rather concerned with the way that the market was heading um, in terms of box shifting against actual quality of product. Um, what do you see the, um, in the immediate future? I mean, do, do you think that things are rosy or do you think we'll actually maybe lose a couple of other manufacturers along the way? Well, um, those of them, those people that know me, um, when Fujitsu's announcement came out over the Christmas period, um, you know, in private, uh, there was a few of us that said, well, that's the first and it won't be the last. And we've heard Pioneer since say that they're not going to manufacture their own panels from the late next year onwards and um, I can see the sense in that because having your own PDP manufacturing plant is a very very expensive business and if you're not selling the, the level of screens of the likes of Masushita um, you're not going to make money at it so um, Pioneer have done a decent thing um, they're not doing anything that Fujitsu hadn't already worked out a few years ago which is why they sold their PDP plant to Itachi um, but uh, hopefully, um, because the Pioneer brand is very well known, and uh, like it or not, um, Pioneer obviously outsold Fujitsu by quite a margin. So you know, hopefully they do rather better at it. But um, you know, you've heard Sony have closed their rear projection business and posted well, what what I thought was uh, an eye-watering loss. Uh, Hitachi. Um, have made some rumblings about what they're going to be doing in the none-too-distant future. Uh, Fujitsu, obviously that's history. Uh, Pioneer have announced that um, they're re-evaluating their situation and you know, repositioning themselves in the market so they can continue to do battle. And um, you, know, you even hear about Philips and LG. Um, their relationship seems to be a bit up and down of late. Philips wanting to get out of it or LG wanting to get out of it depending on which paper you read on which day and uh, it's, it is, it's a cold crawl world out there this year, I think this year will be really, really tough it's, you know, it affects most things you know, if people haven't got money to spend the last thing they're going to spend it on is a 42, 50 60 inch plasma screen for the front room you know, they're going to keep their pennies to themselves and pay their mortgages you know, high-end brands are the first things that take a dive in that type of market. You know, obviously, um, the people at the very high end, with uh, their mansions and everything else, they have money regardless. You know, the rich are always rich. <laughs> it's just the, the likes of you and me that think, oh, I can't actually afford to buy that plasma this month. I have to wait. But, uh, it's going to be a very hard year for all concerned in the AV market, and I don't think anybody would say any different. Graham, with the way that LCD is dominating, do you think plasma's dead? Do you think um, do you think it's, it's it's just a matter of time now? <laughs> yeah. Oh, I'm. Uh, it's it's the question that always comes up. Um, I've always answered the question that LCD are at a particular stage in the market. They're cheap, cheerful, reasonable performance in the smaller sizes, and to be honest with you, there is no point in anybody competing with them up to 37, 40 inches. After that size, you know, when, when you get to 50 inches and above, um, a plasma still has 
quite considerable advantages in picture quality. Um, you get the old arguments that, of course, LCDs are more uh, energy efficient and this, that and the other, and it's been debunked so many times now. Um, we won't go there again, but uh, suffice it to say that nobody can really say that an LCD is much more energy efficient than a plasma simply because of the way plasma works and not many people understand it um, just as a brief aside you know, plasma is probably the only energy uh, modulating screen available whereby depending on the picture content is how much energy it uses LCDs um, in general um, consume the same amount of power whether they're showing a black screen or a white screen um, and that's where the differences are. You can measure these things in the factory and say this is the maximum current consumption of a given panel and people say, oh, yeah, but plasma's three times less energy efficient than LCD. But you, know, you watch a, an average day's viewing and measure the consumption figures and they're all very, very similar. So plasma should not feel like it's the um, poor relation to an LCD screen. But uh, LCD screen manufacturer is that much cheaper to do and you know, there's significant investment by the likes of your Samsungs and your Sharps and uh, they have enormous factories and they churn out LCD panels by the million and this economies of scale at the end of the day you know, the more you produce um, the more panels you can make the cheaper you can sell them for the more market share you get um, if only quality could get in the way of that occasionally, I'd be a happy man. But um, there you go. Uh, I've only seen one or two LCDs in the smaller sizes that uh, I would give house room to, and I've got both of them in my house. <laughs> so I'm not just a plasma nut. But uh, uh, pride of place in the front room is a 50-inch plasma, and uh, I can't see me throwing it away anytime soon. So I just hope plasma doesn't go by the wayside on a pure cost-of-manufacturer basis, because it is a better picture quality. Okay, well, um, Graham, thanks for your thoughts on that. Um, it's always interesting to get a different point of view, like I say, myself and Neil discussed this last month, so it's good to get your views in here. And uh, we'll be back just in a second, and we're going to go on to the, uh, uh, well, the, the slightly um, uh, scary topic of cables and myths, and that's coming next. <laughs> For up-to-the-minute AV discussion and hardware reviews, visit avforums.com. Okay, well, uh, time's flying by, um, but we've got one last thing that we want to discuss this week. And after going through um, quite a few posts on the forums and and reading quite a few threads, we thought it'd be an interesting subject to cover, um, especially as we have um, industry members with us who have hands-on experience every day, I would imagine, with cables. So we're going to look at cables and, um, well, the whole sort of snake oil world of, of does it make any improvement and how much money should you spend on cables and so on. And I think the the one area we need to look at first, and I'm going to come to Neil on this, is HDMI. Um, so Neil, just um, to bring people up to speed, people might know this, people might not know this, so just to get everybody in the same uh, uh, level playing field... Uh, just give us a quick introduction to HDMI and um, and basically the different classifications of cables that are out there. So the, the famous HDMI cable, Phil, is something that I'm sure most listeners uh, will be quite familiar with. Um, we see it now uh, on most consumer devices and TVs, and um, I think it's only going to increase in its popularity. 
Um, the HDMI physical cable um, contains a number of elements. Uh, it has three high-speed um, channels in it, known as TMDS channels. Now, those TMDS channels is what carries uh, the video and also the audio data um, between devices. Uh, there's a second uh, low-speed channel, um, which typically carries uh, information like the EDID information um, and also the HDCP handshaking information that I'm sure everyone has cursed at uh, if they've used HDMI for any time period. Um, the next important thing that, that people will probably know about HDMI is that there are a number of different classifications of HDMI. Um, and those classifications get bandied around and applied to cables and all of that kind of stuff. What people should really be looking for in an HDMI cable at this minute in time is a cable which is classed as HDMI 1.3b compliant. Now, within HDMI 1.3b, uh, which is just a specification, now people mustn't assume that that implies any sort of better performance over an HDMI 1.2 cable, it just probably means that it's been tested to a slightly higher standard. Um, the performance itself should not actually be altered. Uh, but there are two categories within the HDMI 1.3b specification. Um, a Category 1 cable uh, is for, let's say, lower speed data rates. Um, we would class that up to 1080p60 um, over the full rate of the cable. Um, so basically, a Category 1 cable should satisfy uh, most uses that people will have for it. There is a second standard, though, uh, which is Category 2. Um, and to date, there are probably only one or two Category 2 um, devices available. Uh, now, what Category 2 does is it allows transfer up to the theoretical maximum um, of the HDMI uh, specification. Uh, with all of the various features like high definition audio, um, deep color, um, all of that that stuff that adds information into the bitstream and gives such a very, very high data rate um, onto the cable. A Category 2 device will be able to carry that information. Now, to date, all Category 2 devices uh, are fiber optic. Um, and as I say, there are only one or two of those, and people certainly shouldn't expect to be buying those um, to hook up their, their Blu-ray player to their TV anytime soon. Um, so HDMI 1.3b Category 1 is what most people should be looking for in an HDMI cable at this minute in time. So Neil, I've just bought my new uh, Blu-ray player, and there's a HDMI cable in there, and after all, the signal's digital, so... Um I'm just going to use that cable because why Why should I be paying £70, £80 for um, a named branded product? Okay, how did I know you were going to ask that question, Phil? Uh, could it be because we see it every single day on the forums, I wonder? We do indeed. <laughs> um, it is a good question because the signal, of course, that is on an HDMI cable is digital. Um, but one of the, the main mistakes that people make when they, they talk about HDMI being digital is they assume that the signal will either come through or it will not come through. Um, so effectively, if you have a picture, that means that the HDMI cable is working correctly. Now, it is correct that as a digital signal, um, there is a very, very sharp tail-off from when the signal works to 
when it completely fails. Um, but that signal is actually uh, not only at a pixel level, but at a sub-pixel level. So by that, I actually mean either the, the red, green, or blue component of every pixel on the display. Now, it's actually very possible uh, that uh, you could be having some, some corruption, some data not getting transferred correctly uh, at a sub-pixel level rather than at the pixel level or on the overall image level. Uh, and what that does is it serves to, to soften the picture. Um, it's something that you quite often see. Uh, you can sometimes see uh, a little bit more uh, picture noise. Uh, people will be familiar with with the sort of dancing pixels, a sort of a purple pixel effect that you can sometimes see as the, the data rate is starting to tail off. Um, typically that's only one or two pixels across, but it sort of moves across the screen and can be quite distracting. Um, and the reason for that is quite simply, uh, at the data rate that the, the device is operating at, you're getting very, very small errors that are not being correctly uh, compensated for by the error correction that's built into the HDMI uh, receiver and uh, transmitter chips. So all of these potential problems, Phil, mean that the, uh, the cable that's included uh, in the box with your DVD player, whilst it may work, it's also quite possible that you're not getting quite the picture performance that you could be getting by using something slightly better. Now, that doesn't necessarily need to, to be a 100 pound a meter cable or anything like that. Um, for HDMI, we certainly don't advocate uh, any of these super esoteric cables. Um, just a well-made cable that meets the specification and is properly shielded at lengths of less than five meters, say, is pretty much always going to be sufficient. Okay, you know what, well, that makes sense, but what about if I, I've got the projector at one end of the room and my AV amp is at the other end of the room and let's say I want to run a 20-meter HDMI cable, um, what problems can I then encounter? Well, this is when it becomes much more essential to have a good quality cable. Um, now, again, just to stress, that doesn't really mean that you have to spend hundreds or thousands of pounds on an HDMI cable. It just means that you have to have a well-made uh, cable that meets the specification correctly. Now, because of the, the length of the cable and the very high data rates that are involved, especially if you're sending 1080p60 uh, over the cable, what you tend to find is that the errors gradually increase as the cable length increases until at some point the picture simply becomes unwatchable or uh, you find that you have uh, no picture at all. You have a catastrophic error um, that cannot be recovered uh, by the HDMI device itself. And I guess that's going to cause problems for the, the likes of you guys. If uh, you're busy channeling these cables into walls, you, you obviously you're looking for a, a certain standard of cable that you know is going to work. And would you advocate that you actually test that cable before you do any channeling work? Uh, anyone who doesn't test a cable before channeling into a wall is insane um, and deserves, <laughs> deserves to be whipped with the cable once they've pulled it from the wall. Uh, really, it is an absolute essential to test the cable. Now, this actually raises another interesting point, and it's something that we've, we've really started to come up again uh, more and more uh, as we do more and more testing with very long HDMI cable runs. And by this, I mean runs over 20 metres. Uh, in our day-to-day -day business, Phil, we often do cable runs over copper of up to 50 metres uh, over HDMI. 
Now, as you can imagine, uh, we need to use quite a good quality cable to ensure that it works over 50 metres. But what we found is that some devices actually have uh, reclocking built into the receiver end of the HDMI device, um, whereas some devices don't have that reclocking. Now, as I'm sure our readers know, you can actually buy uh, external devices uh, which will, will resynchronize and reclock an HDMI signal to extend the distance that the, the, the signal can travel. So if you're lucky enough to have a device uh, where uh, the reclocking at the, the, the source, uh, sorry, at the receiver end uh, is working well, then you can typically push the distance a bit further without having to any of these external devices. So what we find is that depending on the combination of source device and receiving device, uh, the actual length of cable that we can run varies quite dramatically. Um, sometimes we can do 10 metres, sometimes we can do 25 or 30 metres. Um, it all just depends on that combination, and that is why it's so important to test, not only to find out if the cable is working, but to find out if the combination of source uh, and display that you're trying to use uh, will work properly with the length of cable run that you're looking to do. And Graham, what problems have you come across with uh, cables once they're actually in position and they've been there for a while? Um, I, I would guess that lower quality cables will be uh, prone to to um, uh, different issues. So, so maybe you could explain that a little bit. Yes, um, it's a not often known fact that uh, a lot of these cables are not designed to be buried in walls and plastered over. Um, a lot of the jackets on these cables are not actually waterproof and plaster and cement render and things like this have got some nasty alkalis and acids in them and eventually they get to the bits of copper and um, you know, it all goes downhill so a cable that might have worked perfectly well for six months or nine months all of a sudden starts having issues so you, you do have to specify the cable properly if you're going to bury them in walls now obviously you'd always advocate putting them in some sort of trunking or conduit or even the old fashioned uh, wiring capping that you get but uh, a lot of people don't, they simply bang a V-shaped slot in the wall, push the cable in, plaster over it, job done um, this is, it heads up with two problems, A, if your cable fails you can't get it out without wrecking the wall and B, if um, you break the ends, you can't get it out without wrecking the wall. I must admit, not many days go past these days in our workshop where we don't see an HDMI connector um, looking slightly worse for wear. I kid you not, when people have managed to get them in upside down, they've managed to get them in almost any position known to man uh, the Karma Sutra has to be rewritten for putting HDMI's in the machines and of course the socket in the display or the socket in the DVD player or Blu-ray player or whatever else is also quite a fragile affair and when you break those um, you end up having to you know, dismantle the screens, replace what effectively is quite expensive sub-assemblies. So um, HDMI around our place is called the highly disappointing multimedia interface because it's just so easy to break for all sorts of reasons before you even consider the signal going down it. Um, yeah, it's, it's the future. Uh, nobody's going to rewrite the... Uh, 
design books now, so we're all stuck with it. But um, as Neil quite rightly says, um, test your cable properly, um, plug it in once, uh, make sure it stays put because um, they are known to fall out. It's just like a digital scar in that respect. Yeah, anybody that wiggles around their unit and the scar falls out the back, it doesn't have to fall out the back very far. And the same is true of HDMI. Um, make sure it's in and make sure it stays put. Uh, people that think that they can unplug and plug HDMI in with gay abandon when they swap sources and things like this are in for a very nasty shock. Because, um, yeah, they say it's rated for 10,000 insertions and stuff like that, that, but that is with people that can see exactly what they're doing, line it up nicely and push it in nice and gently. It doesn't mean that uh, someone scrabbling around around the back of their plasma display or PlayStation or whatever, um, giving it a mild stab in the right direction, is going to end up with anything other than a broken connector in the fullness of time. So HDMI switches and... Uh, distribution amplifiers for HDMI and things like this are um, a very worthwhile addition because you only break one little bit you don't break the display, you don't break anything else and the more things you can leave plugged in and just press the button on your remote control to select whichever device you want the better Um, that's sound advice really (laughs) even video sound advice so guys um, let's kill some myths here then um, we've already spoken about the £5 cable out, out of the box against a, a well-made cable, although you don't have to spend a fortune on it. Um, another area where, where people might get confused is, is the old um, hi-fi snake oil, where we have various manufacturers who make uh, various exotic uh, cables and, and materials and so on. Does that transfer to HDMI or um, should, should HDMI just be made one certain way and as, as long as it's a good quality cable, um, you shouldn't have any problems, Neil. Well, there is a, a very detailed specification that describes how an HDMI uh, connector in particular uh, should be designed and made uh, so that it has a, a correct fitting in the socket. Um, it's a friction fit that keeps the whole thing together. So, of course, it's very important that that be made. The next thing is, Graham. Uh, has touched on, it's quite important if the cable is going to be buried in a wall uh, that it be correctly rated uh, not only for uh, being embedded in plaster but also for uh, uh, fire and all of these other quite important issues um, the third thing is that the cable must be properly screened, especially if it's going over long distances now this is something that, that many of the very cheaper cables uh, just simply don't use screening um, to quite the same extent as some more expensive. Uh, and again, we must come back to the fact that you don't need to spend hundreds of pounds on these cables um, to get the very best performance. And then the final thing is actually how how thick the copper is and the quality of the copper that's been used to make these cables. There is a physical limit uh, to the thickness of the copper that can be used to make an HDMI cable. Uh, simply because it becomes impossible to solder the ends of the cable uh, by using a thicker copper. So if you have a cable that has a correctly made end, uses the heaviest gauge of copper that can physically fit and is correctly screened, you're pretty much um, not going to be able to do much to improve the performance of that cable, if anything. So um, let's look at some of these reviews that are out there um, 
on the internet and within certain publications. Uh, we won't name any names, but um, some are guilty of the fact that they will review a cable, an HDMI cable, and say that the uh, the, the colour performance is more vibrant, the uh, the contrast was improved, the black levels were far better. It's just bollocks, is it not, guys? Depends well, how bad the other cable they're comparing with it with was. Like like Neil quite rightly says, a correctly specified cable made to spec will work as good as any other correctly specified cable made to spec. Um, the longer it gets, the more critical that becomes. Um, the source and the display should not be ignored either. Um, not all HDMI sources are the same. Not all HDMI displays are the same. Some work well together, some don't. Um, that's the uh, snake oil part of it. It's, uh, stick to the rules. Properly specify cable of the right length and the right copper copper size for the for the length, and um, you know, test it before you bury it in the wall. Um, for someone that says that a one meter cable from X manufacturer is significantly different to a one meter cable from Y manufacturer using the same source and same display, would just mean that one cable is not correctly specified and the other one is. So, so Neil, is is that the whole thing? It's it's not actually the cable that's making the difference. It's it's the specification of the cable and what what bandwidth that that cable can handle. It stands to reason that the better made the cable, the higher the, the data rate that the cable will support. It's, it's very simple. That's why people will often find that a cable will work at 720p, say, but will fail at 1080p. Um, a cable that's correctly specified for HDMI 1.3b Category 1 and meets all of the design requirements for that um, should, in theory, uh, offer an identical picture performance to another cable that also correctly meets that specification. Um, people are a little bit, let's let's say they perhaps haven't experienced enough cables um, or, or done enough installs to realise that these things really do vary. Now, one of the other difficulties though, and just to touch on, on talking about reviews and stuff like that, one of the main difficulties uh, that, that the HDMI uh, suppliers will always have is how to uh, objectively prove uh, that their cables result in a better picture performance. Now it's actually quite easy uh, to measure uh, better performance over an HDMI cable if you plug it into uh, quite sophisticated measuring equipment. Um, if you plug it into a very high uh, bandwidth oscilloscope uh, and you can measure an eye diagram, uh, is what it's called. You, you can see how well the cable works over its full length and what data rate it can support and all of these things. Um, so that's fantastic if you can see that information. It tells you how good the cable is. Um, the difficulty is how you then translate that information into differences in the picture performance. Um, because you're, you are talking about ones and zeros travelling over the cable, um, it's very difficult to to come up with a test pattern or anything like that that specifically shows up the differences in HDMI cables. Um, if if you've done enough installs and you've looked at enough displays, you can see some of the telltale signs if there's a softness or anything like that that you're not used to seeing. But it's very, very, very difficult um, to come up with a set of objective tests 
that can be repeated by a number of people in their own homes to see if an H one HDMI cable is better than the other. Um, and so for that reason, um, I, I think it's helped to perpetuate, uh, let's not call it a myth, but the belief that an HDMI cable either works or it doesn't. That's not the case. Um, but nor is it the case that just because an HDMI cable costs a couple of hundred pounds that it's suddenly going to offer miraculous picture quality that you didn't have before. Okay, guys, let's wrap this up. And um, if if forum members think uh, I've been giving you guys a hard time here, I'm just asking the questions that have been written uh, in certain threads that are on the forums. These questions come up all the time. So hopefully, uh, with the answers that we've gotten um, from the guys here, uh, we can build up a picture of what it is that we should be looking for. But I'm going to come back to the guys and just say... Um, Let's let's just put it in simple terms for people. If they're looking for for HDMI cables, um, what kind of things should they be looking for? What kind of things should they avoid? And if they go into Curry's and the salesman's trying to sell them uh, a hundred and fifty pound monster HDMI cable, um, how they get around uh, to finding a product that's actually suitable for what they're buying and and, and what they can they can uh, use within their systems. And uh, let's go to Neil first. Okay, so there are a number of very simple things that people should be looking for. Um, they should look for the gauge of the copper used. Um, they should look at how well screened the cable is. Now, ideally, the cable should have the TMDS pairs individually screened. Um, it should have the high data rate channels screened. And then it should have an overall screen plus a braid to protect the cable mechanically. Now, it's pretty difficult to see how you could improve on that level of screening. Uh, the third thing that they need to look for is they need to look for uh, a cable with a suitable uh, outer jacket, an outer sheath, so that they can embed it in their wall if that's part of their requirements. Uh, and then the final thing is that they should simply take the cable and plug it into two or three different TVs and see if the connector um, meets the specification. You can tell it quite easily. It, it, it resists as you pull it out. Um, it has to have a little bit of a grip, otherwise you're going to have a lot of problems um, with the cable simply falling out at the slightest bit of vibration or the slightest knock on the TV. Okay, and any buying advice that you can give, Graham? No, I think I wholeheartedly agree with what Neil's just said. Um, they are the main criteria for buying an HDMI cable. Um, from a consumer point of view, it mustn't fall out. It must stay put. It must be suitable for the application they're putting it to, and have the correct rating for the distance they're buying. Everything else then should be relatively plain sailing. You hear so many problems of HDMI this and HDCP that failing and all sorts of things, and 99% of it is just down to the cable or the connectors on the ends. Get a, get a good cable, don't have to pay, spend a fortune on it. Um, you always have people that spend a £1,000 on an HDMI cable and say it's the dog's what's-its, and uh, you have to live with that. But um, that's not to say that someone that spent one or £200 on a similar length cable won't get exactly the same result. Um, if it's been made well and it's used properly, and a little bit of care at the end of the day has been... Um, put onto the connection and putting the whole kit together uh, it should just work um, until 
everybody's the same and the specs are all the same and the cables are all made to the same spec you're going to get cables that work cables that don't work people are going to put them in upside down and break things and these sort of things are well, cold facts of life with HDMI find it interesting that um, DVI, which HDMI is um, the granddaddy of, didn't seem to have any of these problems, but uh, there you go. That's life. Progress doesn't stop for anybody. HDMI 1.3 is basically a bigger pipe from version 1.2 or 1.1. It doesn't actually give you anything unless your source equipment and or display equipment or anything in the middle can take advantage of it. Now a lot of people have mentioned deep colour and things like this. Now just because the spec allows for deep colour doesn't mean to say that you're miraculously going to get it on your display just by using HDMI 1.3 compliant devices. Um, maybe it's best put that DVD, HD DVD and Blu-ray are fixed at a point in time. The specification for those is 8-bit per channel. That's it. It's no better than that. It's no worse than that. That is what it is. Now, for any any monitor or any other device in the way that says, oh, it's deep colour capable, you have to feed it something that's capable of outputting deep colour. And frankly there isn't anything apart from maybe one high definition camcorder that purports to output it but of course nobody's measured that yet so in essence yeah by all means spec HDMI 1.3 compliant devices um, use them and um, you'll get the best picture quality you can out of any given source but don't think that plugging in 1.3 compliant devices will give you deep colour because it doesn't unless the source is actually outputting it and like I said DVD, HD DVD and Blu-ray don't it has to be something else that not yet invented for you to gain access to that same goes with lip sync you don't automatically get it the amplifier or the surround processor has to support it and so does everything else in the chain otherwise it simply doesn't work and you're back to the old fashioned method of adjusting lip sync manually and that's about it in a nutshell Graham, I mean, talking about deep colour and um, the, there's a couple of other things that come under the digital cinema specs um, which can theoretically uh, be moved over HDMI. But I think, that, I think the thing that we're trying to stress here is that even Blu-ray with its um, capability of storing lots more data, it's still not going to be compliant with deep colour or uh, any of the DI specs. Isn't that correct? Yeah, in a nutshell... Blu-ray is 24-bit colour, 8 bits per channel. That's all it is. That is the spec. That's what it's made to. If someone makes a Blu-ray type of disc that's got all 48-bit colour or 12 bits per channel or whatever, it becomes something rather... or 16 bits per channel, should I say. It becomes something else. It is not Blu-ray standard as it stands at the moment. So you'll have a shelf full of Blu-ray discs and you'll have a shelf full of Blu-ray on steroids discs. They're not the same thing. And frankly, at the moment, it doesn't exist. And I guess we need to add in here as well that um, according to the Hollywood studios, there are no plans whatsoever to bring deep colour in either. Is And, and obviously that knocks that, that argument on the head straight away, doesn't it? 
Uh, yeah, I think you're quite right. Um, Hollywood have standards. Their master discs and everything else are 8-bit per channel. I can't see them refilming epics like Lord of the Rings and things like this to bring you 48-bit colour or 16 bits per channel. Uh, Hollywood just doesn't see the need for it because, frankly, the um, master prints are that good. And would anybody actually see the difference? And don't forget the display has to be able to display this. Um, LCDs and plasmas struggle with 8-bit per channel. <laughs> if you give them 16-bit, I have no idea what they'd do with it because that technology doesn't really exist yet either. So, in fact, it's simply just a bigger pipe. Sure, future-proof if you're putting HDMI cables in the wall, which is what we were discussing. But don't get carried away with anything you read by the fact that you'll get instantly better colour definition, better colour graduation. HDMI cable that works properly to spec gives you whatever goes in comes out the other end. Should add nothing, should take nothing away. And what goes in is 8-bit per channel. And just to pick up on one last point as well, um, Graham and I have experienced enough training sessions and installs together now um, to have discovered that just because a cable is expensive doesn't necessarily mean that it's any better made or will work any better than a cheaper <laughs> cable. Um, we've had many, many instances of very, very expensive esoteric HDMI cables which were simply not made to standard, which did not work correctly even over very short distances. So. Cost is not one of the criteria that people should use when buying an HDMI cable. Certainly for a one meter cable, there's little to be gained from spending more than £30. Um, for a very long cable, so let's say uh, 20 metres, three to £400, say, there would be little to be gained from spending any more than that. Um, and even much longer cables uh, up over the 50 metre mark, you shouldn't look to be... Sp- spending you know thousands of pounds on these cables um, a 50 meter cable you think you could probably expect to pick up for less than 750 pounds so whilst not not the cheapest certainly you don't need to be breaking the bank to buy good quality okay well my thanks uh, to neil thank you neil thank you phil as a pleasure as always and uh, thanks very much to graham hopefully this will be a, a more of a regular event for you graham a oh, pleasure phil as always And uh, that wraps up our podcast for this week. If you have any questions, queries or comments, then you can uh, add your feedback to the post in the uh, podcast thread or you can send us an email to podcast at avforums.com. This is Phil Hinton saying thanks for listening and we'll be back again with more Home Cinema Talk next month. The AV Podcast was presented by Phil Hinton. Original music by Andrew Bassett and Richard Cosgrove. The AV Podcast was mixed and produced by Phil Hinton, and the senior producer was Stuart Wright. All content, including sound clips and music, is copyright material and featured for promotional use only. The AV Podcast is copyright M2M Limited.